Dear God, we thank you so much for all that we've been able to sing back to you this morning. And as we just listened to that last song, it just kind of brought it all together. Jesus, our wonderful Lord, everything that you have accomplished and how it has come together over the course of history and time and today, that message is still as current as the day it was given. God, we thank you so much that you love us. We thank you so much that you allow us to love you. God, I pray that in our moments today that we'll be glad that we were here. And God, that this past week, all the various things that have taken place can somehow be sifted through the Spirit of God and the Word, and that we can walk out of here in confidence knowing that you are still on the throne. God, we pray for those this morning who are grieving, and we look at a country today, the country of France, and all that has taken place there, and it's so hard to even comprehend how anybody could do something like this, and yet... There is a group of people today, a whole country that's reeling, and a city today that is struggling with the aftermath. As our world leaders meet together, interesting the timing of it all, God, I pray that somehow they would bend the knee to you. We know that this world is heading in a certain direction, but it is not out of control. And you have a plan and a purpose and a desire that all men should come to a saving knowledge of you. God, help us to be part of your page, your program today. For our own people this morning, we continue to pray for them. We think this morning of Brent and Carol, and we also think of Brenda And we think of others today that need that special touch from on high. God, we ask that as the people of God this week, we might be able to be sensitive to your urging and leading. And there's things you'd have us do that we could be an encouragement. I pray that we would do that. We pray for our ministries. We pray for our nominating team as they'll be meeting in the next little while and putting together the the different uh, leaders for the next year. We ask for great wisdom as we get together to do that. And as we come into this Christmas season, God, I pray that we will be filled with that true message and that we'd be willing to share that gift to everyone that we meet. We thank you for our shoebox opportunity And we have no idea where these boxes are going to go and how you're going to use them. But we commit them to you. And God, we pray for our missionaries, a host of them that are on there. We thank you for those that were able to help out uh, down at the camp with Gary and Christina yesterday. We thank you for the work that was done. And we continue to ask a special blessing upon that ministry and upon that couple as they give of their time. Truly. This is a great opportunity for us. These are great days to live. Help us to look to you, the author and finisher of our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Well, it certainly is a delight this morning to have with us Dr. Thomas Thompson. I always get that wrong. And uh, he and his wife, Jackie, uh, traveling all the way from New York. And uh, they're well known to Connie and Phil. And, uh, but to the rest of us, we may not know them as well. But as we've had the opportunity this last week, and just to be able to sit down uh, with Milo uh, in office this week, it was just a delight. And there's something about getting together with God's people, isn't it? And there's this bond. It doesn't make any difference, the connections. It's just there's a bond that you have in Christ. And I, I can assure you, uh, and he said to me, he said, now, when you get up there and you, you introduce me, make it brief. He said, I'm just a farm kid saved by grace. And that's good, isn't it? Uh, a pastor, a Bible college professor, and also a president of the school traveled around the world. But you know what the most important thing that we need to know about him this morning? Is that he loves Jesus. And that he's one of his kids. And that he's willing to share that message with all of us. And so we're going to welcome this morning uh, Dr. Thompson, going to give him the time. There was an outline that was given to you. Uh, there should be some extras around. If you don't have a copy, just stick your hand in the air and we'll give you one of those. And uh, the morning is yours, sir. As long as you're done by 6 o'clock service tonight, that'll be appropriate. I won't take a vote as to how many of you agree with him on that. I want to say it's been a delight for uh, Jackie and myself to be able to be here and visit with Phil and Connie. Connie is Jackie's sister, I was going to say younger sister, and uh, so it's a real privilege for us to be here and be with them, but also to be here in the church, and Pastor, I thank you for the opportunity to be able to share. Uh, I have a couple of stories I want to tell you. I want to get you so you're not quite so serious looking, okay? Jacob, who was age 92, and Rebecca, who was age 89, living in Florida. You do recognize a few older people live in Florida? And they were excited about their decision to get married. So they went for a stroll to discuss the wedding, and on the way they passed a drugstore, and Jacob, who's 92 years old, said to his wife, future wife, Rebecca, 89, let's go in. He talked to the guy behind the counter, and he said, are you the owner? And the pharmacist answered, yes. Jacob said, we're about to get married. Do you sell heart medication? Pharmacist, of course we do. Jacob said, well, how about medicine for circulation and rheumatism? All kinds. Jacob said, well, do you have medicine for memory problems and arthritis and jaundice? And the pharmacist said, yes, a large variety. We got the works. Well, what about vitamins and sleeping pills and Geritol? And the pharmacist said, absolutely. Well, Jacob said, do you sell wheelchairs and walkers? And the pharmacist said, all speeds and sizes. And Jacob said to the pharmacist, great, we'd like to use this store as our bridal registry. There was a married couple in their early 60s who were out celebrating their 35th wedding anniversary. They were in their early 60s. And they were in a quiet, romantic little restaurant, and suddenly a tiny yet beautiful fairy appeared on their table and said, 
for being such an exemplary married couple and for being faithful to each other for all this time. I will grant you each a wish. Oh, I want to travel around the world with my darling husband, said the wife. And the fairy moved her magic stick and abracadabra, two tickets and necessary expenses for their trip appeared in her hands. Now it was the husband's turn. He thought for a moment and he said, well, this is all very romantic, but an opportunity like this only occurs once in a lifetime. So I'm sorry, my love, but my wish is to have a wife 30 years younger than me. And the wife and the fairy were deeply disappointed, but a wish is a wish. So the fairy made a circle with her magic stick and abracadabra. The husband became 92 years old, so that he now had a wife that was 30 years younger. Pastor mentioned that I grew up on a dairy farm in upstate New York, and I didn't get saved until after I got out of high school. My mom and dad were not saved until after I was. And after I was saved, he began to nudge me in the direction of ministry and preparation. And then after I had prepared for ministry, he placed me in a pastoral role in a small country church of a bunch of farmers. And I had a great time there. And uh, for nearly 30 years, I was serving as a pastor of a church, churches. And then God called me to be the president of Baptist Bible College and Seminary in Clark Summit, Pennsylvania, for, which I did for 15 years. And now I have been traveling for 15 years in an uh, itinerant ministry that has taken me all over, as Pastor mentioned, in the world. And it's been a great ride, and God has uh, wonderfully given me opportunities I never dreamed I would ever be doing or wherever I would go. I just have always felt I'm a farm kid that he saved and uh, never got over being on the farm. And yet he said, I want you to go here, and I want you to do this, and then I want you to go here and do this, and I want you to go here and do this. And that's kind of been the story of my life. In these 15 years that I've been traveling in an itinerant ministry, it's been my privilege to have ministry with over 500 churches. And so I've gotten to see a lot of, of churches, a cross-section of what's happening, both here as well as in foreign countries. And there are some awesome needs. And I think one of the great needs of our day today, Keith was touching on there at the beginning of the service, and that is to develop a church that is intergenerational. That's not an easy task. You stop to think about it. When I first started out in ministry, pastoral ministry, over 55 years ago, we only had two and three generations in our churches. Today, because of longevity of life, we could have four and five generations in our churches. Each of those generations has their own culture. How do you face the challenge of increasingly having more generations 
each with their own culture, and be able to blend that so that you can have a very meaningful, powerful church experience and wonderful worship. If one generation insists it's got to be their way, you will not have the other generations. And I hope I can enlighten things here a little bit this morning as we think about this, because I find it to be a critical issue. Those of you that are grandparents, and I think that is the majority of people here, I'm your peer. Next month, I'll be 81. And uh, I want to be part of a church where my kids and my grandkids want to come to that church. And that's going to be a challenge. Because we're going to have to learn that what is biblical And where am I insisting on things authoritatively that don't have a chapter and verse? And am I by that going to make it so that communicating to the next generation, my kids or the grandkids, that uh, your generation, your culture is not going to really fit here? So hang on. Did you take your heart medicine this morning? Good. Uh, I am in churches where there is a lack of the younger generation. Or if they're there, they're a non-entity. They're apathetic. And I'm in churches where there's a lack of senior saints. Because that church has opted to go with the younger generation and they've shelved the senior saints. And that's sad. I don't think either one of those are biblical. I think we should be striving to learn how to blend in such a way that every generation is going to have a meaningful, fruitful, dynamic, living, spirit, energy kind of an experience in church, and they can't wait to get there. Paul's going to talk some about that, and I'm going to hopefully give you an overview of what he's saying in our text. If I was pastoring a church, this would be five different messages, but I'm not pastoring, so i got to give you an overview here this morning and hope that you can kind of fill it in later as you think on it. You have an outline. So if you want to kind of follow along, that would be great. I want you to come to the place. uh, There are five things here we're going to look at in this text in 1 Thessalonians 5. And these five things I think Paul is addressing to the church at Thessalonica. I think there is a sense of being corporate in his thinking. And uh, I hope that you and I can make this what we're going to strive for. These are kind of benchmarks that we ought to be working towards in our church experience. 
And I hope that will be something you will begin to adopt. And if you haven't already, you'll adopt it and say, I'm going to help. We're going to work towards this in our church here at Peoples. And number one is to recognize and esteem leadership. Look how Paul states it in verses 12 and the beginning of verse 13. He says, and I put it on the screen for you if you want to see it, and we urge you, brethren, recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. What's he talking about here? Well, he's saying that we need to, first of all, understand what the distinguishing characteristics and responsibilities of the person that God has put in charge, pastoral staff. And it's very clear what he's put down here. He said, first of all, you need to uh, esteem and recognize those who labor among you. I think labor among you, in order to labor among you as a pastor, he's had to have grown in his personal life. He's had to come to a level of maturation that he can lead the church. He has had to come to a level of maturation in his ministry skills so that he can lead the church. So I think this Paul is talking about the elder. That's talking about maturity, talking about spiritual maturity and ministry maturity in an individual's life so that he can function in this particular role. Secondly, he, the, Paul mentions those who are over you in the Lord. That's talking about his aspect of role as bishop, overseer, the individual who has the oversight of the church and has a responsibility for the church. And then he goes on thirdly and mentions those who admonish you. And I think he's there talking about him being a shepherd. As a shepherd, he has a responsibility to care for the sheep. Uh, oversight has to do with leadership. And sadly, a lot of pastors have never really learned about leadership. And consequently, they have not led their churches well. But I think you have a pastor who is wanting to lead and is wanting to lead you in a proper way, a biblical way, and a way that's going to aggressively reach out to lost people and bring about a focus that is outward and be able to see the teeming scores of people all around this church that need to be reached for Christ. And uh, you have a pastor that is also an elder. He's grown. He's become mature in many, many areas that have equipped him to be the leader of this church. And thirdly, he's going to function in the role of shepherding you, at coming alongside of you and admonishing you, doing it formally from the pulpit. He has a responsibility to watch over you as a shepherd would, feeding and guiding and protecting. So Paul is very clear about who a leader is, and then he turns around and he says, what should every believer's responsibilities be towards this leader? And he spells it out here in these verses, in these words. He says, first of all, recognize your leader. What does that mean, recognize him? That means uh, you can see that he's got on uh, certain clothing and he wears glasses and you can recognize him when you see him again. I don't think that's what it's talking about at all. I think recognize here conveys the thought of knowing him. Secondly, understanding him. 
And thirdly, appreciating him as the leader. And I think that is going to come about as you gain a proper observation and an attitude towards him, and you understand his person, you understand the position that he fills, you understand his responsibilities that he carries, and the performance of what he is doing. That's what the idea of recognizing is talking about in the text. Secondly, Paul goes on to say, you need to esteem him very highly. What does esteem mean? Esteem means to think well of. I'm in churches where people don't think well of their pastor. That's a sad day. And it's going to be detrimental to the ministry of that church. And you regard him positively. And he says you do it very highly. That means you're going to do it exceedingly, abundantly. You're going to have this kind of respect towards your pastor as a leader. And Paul goes on to say you're going to love him for the work's sake. For the church's sake. For his sake. You're going to love him. Sadly, in many churches, there are people that are adversarial towards the pastor and other leaders, and that sometimes includes senior saints. And uh, pastors cannot do their best work while subject to indifference or carping criticism or unloving attitudes and actions. I had the opportunity to speak at a large church in Iowa in the States back about a year ago. Had several hundreds of people there, and I spoke in the service. And I had to catch a plane right after the service, so the pastor was going to take me to the airport. And, but he wanted to stop by his house and change his clothes before we left. And we stopped by his house, and all of a sudden, while he was changing his clothes and had just come out, there was a doorbell. And he went to the door. Here stood one of his deacons who had become very adversarial. Everything he did, that deacon opposed it. And he said, Pastor, before you leave town, I had to get to you. The message this morning really got to me. And I need to seek your forgiveness. Will you forgive me for how I've been? Pastor forgave him. He said, I've slandered you to a lot of people. I need to get to every one of them this week. And I will. And make it right. That was awesome. That was an awesome moment. And I thrilled in my soul as I listened to that unfold. I was a watcher over here on the side. But that's what's got to happen. And Paul is saying any church is going to grow. Any church is going to be dynamic. Any church that is going to be spirit-filled has got to be a church that addresses this. A church that is going to esteem, recognize, and esteem their leaders. Second thing that he's going to talk about here in the next verse, the rest of verse 13, he wants us to build and maintain the unity of the body. 
Look how he puts it. Be at peace among yourselves. God expects unity in the congregation. I'm going to put it further than that. More than expects, he commands it. And in Ephesians 4.3, for example, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Friends, no church can grow spiritually or numerically without its leaders and members being at peace with the Lord, peace among the leaders, and peace among all of the congregation. And if you're not at peace, you are going to bring that ministry to paralysis. It's not going to accomplish much of anything. When there is dissension and divisions, it usually springs out of selfishness and springs out of sin in our lives. And whether in among the leaders you're sinful or the people are sinful. And the work is going to be hindered greatly. But I just need to remind you, God, God hates the sowing of discord. Proverbs 6.19 and others. I was at a church that uh, God has done some phenomenal things in. Probably about 10 years ago, the pastor of the church in Rochester, New York, had uh, come to a two-day seminar I was doing for pastors. And he sat through that, and he got really turned on. And he said, hey, can you come and help me at my church? He had been a youth pastor, and now he's a senior pastor. He was leading a church of about 250 people on average, and had been plateaued at that for a long time. He said, can you come and help me? I'm getting a lot of pushback, and I need help. So he put together 70 people out of that congregation and had me there from a Friday through Sunday night. And we spent all weekend together. And by the end of the weekend, all 70 of those people were on his page. And they were ready to begin to posture themselves to become a growing, dynamic church reaching lost people. But on Sunday night, there was a man who was there and... He came dressed up with his suit and the power tie, you know, the yellow tie. And the uh, pastor saw him there, and he said, Oh, boy, I bet he's going to confront Milo. And sure enough, as soon as the service was over, he made his way to me and started talking to me and started putting down the pastor and putting down the church. And what was happening in the church, there were some things changing, and he didn't like it, and he was dumping on everything. So I finally stopped him long enough to find out who he was, and he was in his 60s. He, had been a gra he was a graduate of Baptist Bible Seminary in Johnson City, New York, and, but he never went into the ministry and owned a business, a good business, but had been a member of that church all of those years. Finally, I said to him, Sir, can I ask you a personal question? You've been putting down the pastor and putting down these people and not happy with anything, and basically slandering them. I said, can I ask you a personal question? He said, yes. I said, have you led anybody to Christ this year? He started to talk about something else. I said, whoa, wait a minute, come back here. You didn't answer my question. And he stammered around. He finally said, no. 
I said, have you led anybody to Christ in the last five years? No. Have you led anybody to Christ in the last ten years? No. Have you led anybody to Christ in the last 15 years? No. I said, i got a feeling if I keep going, I'm going to get the same answer. I said, it looks to me like what the church is doing, God is using the strategies of this church to lead people to Christ. And what you do, he's not using and it's not leading anybody to Christ. I finally said to him, Sir, if you're going to stay in this church, you need an attitude adjustment. He's still in the church today. You'll be interested to know. He still has some hang-ups, but he's not a problem anymore. He's not sowing seeds of discord. He had 20 people meeting in his home where they were all backbiting, about what, murmuring about what was going on at church. And I said, that's sin. God's not going to bless that. If you can't get happy in this church, maybe you ought to just go and have your own church at home. And, but, friends, you know what's happened in that church over these ten years? They've gone from 250. This year, they had one Sunday where they had 2,900 and some people in multiple services. Recently, they had one weekend where they baptized 150 new converts. Their message has not changed. But they've realized that the culture is an issue, and they need to learn how to read the culture and how to identify with the culture, just like Christ did when he came out of heaven and came into this world. He identified with us in our culture. That meant a different language. That meant different clothing. That meant food. That meant music that he probably didn't hear in heaven. It meant a lot of other things, but he was willing to do all of that. It had nothing to do with chapter and verse or truth. He was willing to change in order to reach lost people. Building and maintaining the unity of the body. Thirdly, got to keep going here. I'm going to get... Down, not enough time. Third thing that I want you to see is sharing in the spiritual ministry to all people. Now, we all have a responsibility to esteem, recognize and esteem leadership. Secondly, to work at maintaining the unity of the body because that is very important to its future strength and fruitfulness. Thirdly, is sharing in the spiritual ministry to all people. Look how Paul puts it in verses 14 to 15. Now, we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. I need to stay here right up front on this one. Every single believer, without exception, 
has a spiritual ministry responsibility, and we need to recognize that all people, there are maybe some people you're going to reach and work with better than others, but we all have a spiritual ministry. There are no exceptions. So if you're doing nothing in ministry, you've got a major issue with God, and God's got a major issue with you. He wants every one of us to realize that there is no believer that ever outgrows doing ministry. It doesn't matter how old we get. The only thing that changes what we're doing for ministry is our health or our strength. But we must continue to do ministry of some sort. He's going to talk about some of the ministry, and if I had lots of time, I would try to flesh out these things that he talks about. There are some categories that he wants us to recognize that we need to work with. Let me show you what they are. Dealing with the wayward. He says, admonish the unruly. That means counsel. That means to work with. The unruly are the careless, those that get out of line. This is a military term, and it's referring to a soldier that's not in step. He's out of place. And there are the wayward in our churches. And every one of you, especially the older people who have walked with God for a long time and hopefully have grown close to him, you ought to have a great ministry with these people, winning them back to the way and letting God use you. Secondly, is dealing with the worried. Every congregation has the faint-hearted. And he says, encourage the faint-hearted. That means those that get discouraged. It means the quitters, the people that give up. And they are deeply affected by adverse circumstances and their own sinfulness, perhaps. And they just naturally lack courage to go on and press on. You need to come alongside of them, and you need to encourage them and help them. Any of you can do that with a note, with a phone call, with a visit, anything that you can physically do to help them. Thirdly are the weak. Uh, weak here means uh, those that are without strength, physically without strength, or morally without strength. In a day and age of pornography and other issues, there are people lacking moral strength. And they're weak, and somebody needs to come alongside of them, put their arm around them, hold them up, and encourage them, helping them to get through that and continue on. Next, he talks about the wearisome. Every congregation has people that are wearisome. What's that mean? Have you got any... I better not ask it that way. Uh, Churches that I've been in, uh, they have had people that, you know, they just wear you out. They get a hold of you and they capture you and they talk to you for word after word after word, a blizzard of words, and you can't get away from them because you really wanted to see somebody else too and you wanted to get to that new person in the congregation, but they've captured you right there. They're wearisome. That's just one example of being wearisome. Uh, But he says to do what, class? Be patient with all men. Patient means to be long-suffering, long-tempered. It's a quality that we all need to build into our lives. 
And uh, we need to work with all that are like that. There ought to be no exclusions of people that receive our ministry in the congregation. We come alongside of them. And then he talks about dealing with the wicked. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good. Uh, don't give back evil for evil. There are, will be people that do evil things. They may be believers and do an evil thing, but you need to have a ministry to them. And how do you minister to them? Not by tooth for tooth, but rather good in the face of that evil. And uh, the Bible talks about that in a number of places. So, friends, I don't know what you may fit into or where you may fit in these things. Paul has given you lots of thoughts about being engaged in ministry no matter your age. The only thing that would affect this is whether you're housebound or you have such ill health that you cannot function in some of the things you used to do, but there's still something for you to do. There's prayer. You can maybe call somebody on a telephone, even from a sickbed. There's things you can do. Don't give up. Don't go on the shelf. A church is poverty-stricken when they put their old people on a shelf. Because they have so much to offer. Don't become faint as an old person and quit. Stay engaged. Stay involved. And help carry on the ministry. The next major thing that he's going to talk about and focus for us is wholehearted, God-centered worship. This is where I could spend probably two hours talking to you. And well, how does Paul put it? I think he kind of encompasses the things, the ingredients of God-centered worship. There are five things here. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Now think about those for a minute. Rejoicing always, constantly. That means if you rejoice always, you're going to create an atmosphere, you're going to create an ambience in the church that is going to be celebratory. You're rejoicing. You're celebrating. Celebrating God and who he is and his awesomeness. Celebrating people coming to Christ and being saved. I'll tell you some of the high times in my pastoral life. I was in a church in Jamestown, New York, where we saw 200 adults saved in one year and baptized in that church. I was baptizing every month 15 to 25 adults. I want to tell you, there was celebration in that church. They could not wait to get there to see what was going to happen next. It was awesome. Celebration. Uh, I, Jackie and I are in some churches where there is zero celebration. They're not celebrating anything. In fact, there's such a dearth of spiritual energy in that church 
you say, whoa, this thing is about dead. Maybe we ought to take it off life support and find a box big enough and bury it before it stinks too bad. Uh, life. Celebration. When there's a new baby born in your family, do you celebrate? You better believe it. And when a new baby is born into the family of God in this church, there ought to be celebration. Uh, some churches that Jackie and I are in, it's almost like a funeral dirge. Have you ever gone to a funeral home where there's an organ playing softly in the background and it's morbid? <laughs> and you say, oh. I, we've been in churches like that. There's no wonder nothing happens in that church. There's no wonder nobody's getting saved. There's no celebration. What do you think unsaved people are going to be attracted to when Christians begin to rejoice, when Christians begin to celebrate? They say, whoa, I'm not living where that is happening. I better find out what's going on over there. And they find their way to that particular church. And they soon come to Christ. Uh, rejoicing, that is something... Very important. And you know, there's things that you need to do in a church in order to bring about celebration. Number one, you've got to win people to Christ. Talk about it. Have testimonies. See baptisms. Music has a great way of enhancing, or conversely, celebration. If you get too much heavy music from the 15th and 16th century, which was morbid introspection, that's going to affect the church. There are a lot of things that go into buildings rejoicing in a church. And God wants you to think that through and figure out how to do that. The next thing he talks about is praying without periods of non-involvement or superficiality. Prayer. Nothing happens without praying. Without ceasing. Constantly praying. Uh, Jesus faithfully was involved in prayer as he ministered. And you and I need to elevate that. Thirdly, give thanks or praise in all circumstances. Thanksgiving, praise. In other words, you're recognizing the sovereignty of God in your life. You're recognizing his lordship in your life. And you're recognizing that no matter what comes into your life, you need to give praise to God. And thanks, all things. Both Jackie and I have experienced the death of our first spouses. I had to come to the place of giving thanks to God. He knew what he was doing. Give thanks in everything. Thankful people. Unsaved people that are not attracted to defeated Christians who are complaining. That's one of my big issues why I don't hardly ever look at Facebook. Facebook can have a lot of young mothers on it. And they say, oh, I'm so tired. Go to bed, honey. Uh, a lot of other issues. Uh, 
I better not get sidetracked here. <laughs> Next thing he says, do not ignore or suppress the spirit. And uh, churches that do that are lacking in energy and power. Churches that are seeing great things happening, the spirit has free course. And he is fully engaged and doing awesome things that humans could not even begin to think about doing. Don't suppress him. Don't quench him. And slandering and gossiping and backbiting and murmuring, they quench the spirit. We need to be sure that we are allowing the spirit of God to be fully involved. Keep going with me. The next thing he mentions is maintain respect for the supremacy of God's word. The scriptures, his full revelation to us. And he wants you and me to realize that here is he's talking about prophecies. I, I think he's talking about in the New Testament prophetic utterances that are referencing spoken word as well as written word that they had in that day as it was coming forth. And we are not to consider it as nothing let me see if I can graphically show you what I'm talking about. Here are the scriptures talking about grace and our living in the Lord. And it's easy to depart from the scriptures, maybe unknowingly. On one side of this equation is relativism. This is where the emerging church movement would land. They become very involved in being culturally relevant, even at the expense of clear teaching of Scripture. God does not want us to do that. He does not want you to ignore parts of the Bible. He does not want you to be apathetic towards any parts of the Bible. To be less than the Scriptures is to compromise. But we need to think about the other side of this equation as well. And that has to do with legalistic Moralism. What do I mean by legalistic moralism? Here's where I'm talking about Christian people who, uh, well, I had fun. I had the opportunity to teach about 400 senior saints in Florida for four weeks, two hours each week. And I got to talking with them, and I said, how many of you are from the north originally? 85% of them are from the north. And uh, I, we got to talking about their churches back up north, and they didn't like what was happening in their churches back up north. And one lady spoke up and said, oh, man, the way people are dressing these days and uh, the jewelry they wear and the piercings they have. And I said, how do you think God would dress somebody if he was getting them ready? So I took them to Ezekiel 16 where it talks about God dressing Jerusalem. And he dressed them culturally, relevant, like it would have been in that day. And one of the things that he did for them was, and in that text, you can read it for yourself, in that text, he put a jewel in their nose. And I looked at these old people, what do you think about that? God would give somebody a nose jewel. Heads are going like this. 
I don't know how many times they probably read that, but they never did catch it when they went through it. Uh, what is the happening there? That's what we call legalism, where we take something that we believe and we push it beyond even where God's at and we give it the authority that God would give in the scriptures. And if somebody else does not do what we think they ought to do or how they ought to live, then we cross them off. We don't have fellowship with them anymore. That's legalism. That is very prevalent in most of the 500 churches I have been in in the last 15 years. I could talk to you about illustration after illustration of what that is talking about. But I want to remind you, just as being less than the scriptures is compromise, being more than the scriptures is compromise. Where should we be? We need to be right where God's word is. Not more than, not less than. And we need to come to differentiate two things. What God has made and what man has made. God has made the scriptures. And he wants us to be right where they are. Man has made traditions, preferences, culture. God didn't make those things. And you can stop to think about all the traditions that exist in this church. <laughs> there are a lot of them. Uh, churches get all hung up on their traditions. You know, really, under these man-made things, the traditions that are in the church, whether you're going to sing the Gloria Patri every Sunday or not, and whether you're going to sit on pews or chairs... Whether you're going to have what instruments on the platform and which ones are taboo and all those kinds of things are purely traditional. Man made. Even what kind of dress you're going to wear Sunday morning. God's capable, you know, of writing down, I want this style of clothing worn on Sunday morning worship. But he didn't. There's no chapter and verse. That's purely a man-made tradition or even a preference or a culture that's been built in a church. I've quit preaching and gone to meddling, haven't I? Uh, but I want you to think with me. It's the difference between a living, vital church that's reaching lost people and one that is just coasting towards its death. Many churches I'm in, I'm watching the median age going higher and higher, year after year. And all I can say is, if you're not willing to address these issues, the day will come when somebody, the last person, will turn out the lights and shut the door. Serious stuff. To change God's word is compromise. To change man-made things is not compromise. 
And finally, godly and maturing Christian living. I think you're fully aware of that. Look how Paul put it. Test all things, hold fast to that which is good, etc., etc. Friends, I can't urge you enough to strive towards the following. The five things that we just looked at. Recognize and esteem leadership. Build and maintain the unity of the body. Share spiritual ministry with all people. Wholehearted, God-centered worship. Worship that every generation can feel part of. Oh, I wish I had more time to talk to you about that. Some of us like the hymns. The younger generation don't like to sing about multiple themes in a hymn. They want a single theme. That's why they like praise music. There, there are those things you've got to bring up and think about. Can I, as an older believer, be willing to set aside my preferences, my tradition of the past, to reach lost people? Jesus was willing to do that when he came out of heaven and came into this world. And I must strive to be like him in every way. Father, I pray that you would continue to bless this church with these good people. Father, help them as they think through some of the things we've talked about this morning and that they may realize that they want to strive to have an intergenerational church where every generation is meaningfully, fully engaged in worship and service. Amen.